We are beginning a new series called Seeking and Enjoying God. It's our desire that you would seek God, that we would all seek God more fervently and enjoy God more fully. We all know that life is full of challenges and hardships and difficulties that sometimes shakes our faith and causes us to reconsider, is God really there for me? Does he really care? This series is designed to encourage us to go deeper with God so that we'll have a stronger foundation and we'll be able to weather those storms knowing that our faith is built on the solid rock that comes with that deeper relationship with God. Our goal is to move us from the head knowledge, what we know is true, to how we process that and live it out through our heart and our daily walk. So um, we'll be considering passages of Scripture that focus on God's forgiveness, God's truth, Offering ourselves as a sacrifice to God, prayer, this wonderful communication privilege that God's given us, God's presence in our lives and what that means, God's blessings in our lives. Today we're going to focus on God's holiness, and I'm so excited to talk about God's holiness because it really does change the way we live, as we're going to see with Isaiah. In our passage and the context of our scripture today, if you take your Bibles and turn back to Isaiah 6, God is about to judge Judah, his people, for her stubbornness and waywardness. And he illustrates what he's about to do by cloaking it in a metaphor. He says, um, there was this farmer who wanted to plant a vineyard. He was going to go all out. So he cultivates the ground, tills, fertilizes, plants a hedge around the area he's going to plant his vineyard. He builds a wall for protection from thieves He plants a beautiful vineyard, and in the middle of this vineyard is this magnificent tower. And in the tower, there's a wine vat for pressing grapes. Everything is there. He spares no expense. But the vineyard doesn't produce. Little worthless, anemic grapes. Nothing of value. So what does the farmer do? Uh, He's greatly disappointed. He tears it all down, lays it to waste, and allows the briars and the thorns to grow. The parable is a parable describing Judah, God's people, whom he had invested so very much, had delivered them from bondage, made them his people, taken them through the wilderness into the promised land, and... Time after time, they had disappointed God. When God looked at Judah, what did he see? He says in chapter 5, starting in verse 7, he says, I look, there's no concern for justice. Behold, all I see is bloodshed and perversion of justice. 
people treat each other with cruelty and wickedness. He says, I looked for righteousness, but behold, all I heard was a cry of distress. They were materialistic. They were just concerned about adding house unto house, addition unto addition, buying the land adjacent to them and just building their estate, developing their empire. They turned to alcohol. Good times. They looked for happy hour every day. They lived for parties, for celebrations. The good life and all it represented. Just wanted a good time. And they were unashamedly, unabashedly flaunting their sins. He says they're dragging them along behind them like on an ox cart for everyone to see. And they're not ashamed at all. They were a people who were in moral confusion. In verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Does it sound familiar? They were in a moral topsy-turvy state of confusion. They didn't know what was right. The things that used to be wrong are now fully embraced and the things that were fully embraced are now considered suspect and sinful. They were proud people. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. They didn't need God's standard. They could figure it out for themselves. Theirs was a morality by consensus and that's bound to change like the weather, right? They were proud and they justified the wicked for a bribe. And they took away the rights of those who were right because they didn't have what the judge was looking for. That was the culture that Isaiah is speaking into. It's not so different than our culture today. What's God about to do here? He is about to declare judgment upon the nations, in particular upon Judah. This passage is about God's holiness. The Bible speaks more about God's holiness than it does about any other virtue. His love is the quality and intensity that's designed only by God himself, a purity and consistently, consistency that defines love like we've never seen it. This agape, sacrificial giving of yourself. His peace is enjoyed in absolute security. No buts, no worries, no intimidation. His peace is a holy peace. There is nothing impure or pollutant about it. His forgiveness is a holy forgiveness. He forgave us completely, entirely. Nothing left hanging in the balance. When he forgives, it's forgotten. His joy is full and complete, experienced with such intensity that it's not tainted with regret or shame. That's what holy is about. It's elevating those virtues to the highest level. For you and me to experience more of the fullness of God is like gazing at the sunset right there as it's 
falling down and setting in its, its largest view, orange and red and yellow casting on the clouds behind. And we're just watching this change as the moments pass and the sun sets. And it's brilliant. He says, this is like God. He is brilliant and beautiful, majestic. It enlivens the heart to know him. He is the fullness of goodness and beauty and truth. So in the first section, God reveals himself to Isaiah. It happened in the year that King Uzziah died. Just a word about Uzziah. He was a good king, took office at 16, and he reigned for 52 years under the mentorship and care of Zechariah, a prophet, a godly prophet. And the Bible says that as long as Zechariah lived, King Uzziah was a good student. He learned and he complied with Zechariah's wishes. And it was to his credit. He prospered. He was a brilliant man himself, intelligent and innovative. And under him, Judah prospered. He was used by God to defeat the Philistines and the Arabs and other enemies. And he commissioned skilled men to create devices that could catapult arrows and large stones at enemies from the city wall. He built up the land. The Bible tells us that he loved the soil. The Ammonites, their enemy, paid tribute to King Uzziah. Unfortunately, King Uzziah, at the end of his life, toward the 52 years, he became proud. His fame and strength went to his head, and it led to his downfall. He committed an unfaithful act by entering into the temple of God and acting like the priest. He wanted to offer on the sacrifice. And these courageous 80 priests led by Azariah, confronted him and said, you ought not to be here doing this. This is the role of the priest. Get out of the temple. Well, you can imagine what this proud Uzziah said at this. He became angry, daring that they would confront him. And it says that while he was raging at the priests in their presence before the incense altar in the Lord's temple, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Uzziah ran from the temple in fear because he was now a leper. And for the remainder of his life, he was set apart in a separate palace and could never enter the temple. His son, Jotham, took over and he, too, was a good man. But in Second Chronicles, he says, but Jotham never entered the temple of the Lord. Obviously learned his lesson. So in the year that Uzziah dies... There is this vision that God gives to Isaiah. He's ready to do something now with his people. And he calls Isaiah uh, and he gives him this vision. It is a vision that is not unlike what he gave to Ezekiel and Daniel and even the Apostle John as he writes the book of Revelation. In this vision, they see the Lord exalted Encircled by this ethereal rainbow, seraphs crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Lamps are blazing, lightning is flashing, thunder crashing, 
angels and saints are worshiping. Imagine, this is heaven. You know, we had a good time this morning, but there are times when I wish we'd be a little bit more animated because we have a great God, right? And, and we need to worship him. And I think in heaven we're going to actually dance and kind of lose ourselves in worship to God. There they see him on his throne. Isaiah sees him on his throne. God reveals himself as ultimate king. King of kings and Lord of lords. High and lifted up. Exalted. This is a phrase that suggests unique position, uncontested power and dominion. He is totally other. And it says that the train of his robe fills the temple. I mean, the, when you think of a train, you might think of a wedding dress, right? You know, that long thing that women wear as they go up the, the aisle. Or Queen Elizabeth, those pictures of her getting married in St. in West... Minster Abbey, um, she has this blue robe, and this took back place back in 1953. 18 feet took six attendants just to carry it. You know, this is a symbol of majesty. God's glorious robe fills the entire temple, a symbol of His absolute authority. There's no room for anyone else. His divine perfections are seen in him, high and exalted. His incomparable splendor. He's served by seraphs. This is the only place in scripture where we have this kind of description of seraphim. They are angelic beings whose purpose is to serve God and their maker. They have six wings. With two, they cover their face. With two, they cover their feet. And with two, they fly. And they're flying about the throne. Imagine this. You know, why are they covering their body parts? Well, you would too if you were in the presence of Almighty God. It doesn't matter if you're an angel who's called to serve as a minister in a flame of fire or if you are a person. You are completely humbled and broken in His presence. It's a wonderful place to be. It's a terrible place to be. They hear a chorus of praise. These seraphims are calling out to one another. They're singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. They're singing to one another, Holy, set apart, exalted, worthy of complete devotion, praise because of His righteousness and purity. This is God's central quality, is that of holiness. I want to take a minute because I think sometimes we don't get this right. Holiness means that he's completely unique. He's other. He's transcendent. He's beyond our understanding. He's unlimited, beyond our imagination. As stated in the introduction, God takes the qualities that we know to be virtuous Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, long-suffering, self-control, these virtues that are of the Spirit. And he, he defines them. They, they're taken to a whole new level of, of infinite uh, fullness and radiance. Even those qualities that are sought after by people on earth, like power and wealth and influence and sovereignty and majesty and honor, 
they're also found in God to the extreme. But they're found in absolute balance. In other words, we say absolute power absolutely corrupts. It's not true with God. Absolute power and sovereignty is balanced with love and gentleness. Long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. What God puts up with. What God could do if he wanted to, but doesn't. Because his... His virtues, his attributes are in perfect harmony with one another. His exaltation and honor are balanced with humility and servitude. The incarnation epitomizes his humility. While he deserves all praise, yet he steps down and becomes a man. And he humbles himself. Now, it's one thing for a father to humble himself. Imagine you men who may be fathers. But then to see your son, whom you have allowed to be humbled, have, give, have given as a gift to the world, to be so mistreated, so disrespected, spurned, spitted upon, treated with such malice, charged with things that he didn't do, treated like a criminal, and crucified on a cross. As a dad, boy, you know, I don't know if I could handle that. Those, those ungrateful wretches. But that's exactly it. Because God's holy, his love is perfect. And it's balanced with humility. And he's willing to give and to love us in spite of who we are. That's why it says... God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay, holy is repeated three times, perhaps for emphasis, but also perhaps because there are three persons in the Godhead. And in this passage, he speaks in plural terms. The Father... He loves perfectly, sacrificially, cares for us, rules, orchestrates, provides. He has his role within the Godhead, the Son. Because he is holy, he was qualified to be the Son who purchased our salvation. The Lamb of God who took our sin upon himself. And because the Holy Spirit is holy in his substance and being, He's always there for us to comfort us. He knows exactly what we need and where we need to go and how to get us to where we should be. He prays for us and intercedes for us and comforts us and teaches us about the Father and reminds us of our hope and reminds us of the Word of God continually to encourage our hearts. He gives us power to witness for Him and to live for Him. This is the wonderful, holy Spirit, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Now consider the second part of the seraphim's declaration. And the whole earth is filled with his glory. How is the earth filled with the glory of God? Well, as I said in the beginning, consider the sunset. The beauty and complexity of creation 
reflects upon the creator, just as the craftsmanship that went into this table by our good friend Rocky West reveals something about the craftsman. We look around and we say, ah, isn't God great? The system that he has created. The shepherd, David, later became king of Israel, spent many nights out under the stars. And in Psalm 19, he says this, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is really not heard. So this was all metaphor. But he says, their line has gone out throughout all the earth and their utterance to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens to the other and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. So he's just talking about the sun, but you can look at the whole of creation especially at this time of the year when we see everything coming out and just say, oh, what an amazing God we have. The Apostle Paul says it like this. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that we are without excuse. God has made himself known to us. Through his creation. So we can know his eternal power and his divine nature just by looking around us and taking it all in, if we will. Finally, God reveals himself to Isaiah in an earthquake as the seraphim uh, speak. They are, the thresholds of the temple are trembling at the voice of God's servant. And this adds that fear factor that makes our God absolutely awesome. And it's like we go to the roller coasters and the, you know, the parks to, to get thrills. It's going to be like that going into the presence of God. It's going to be, oh, I love this. Oh, I'm so scared. You know, this is our God. You know, he's amazing. And I've used this illustration before, but... My my grandson, Gabriel, um, when he was very little, he loved to hear the rumble of the train coming down the tracks. And we could hear it from in our house very, very easily. And every time it, he heard the rumble, I'd say, okay, Gabriel, let's go see the train. And I'd scoop him up and we'd run out the back door and down the sidewalk, across the street and over to the Green Bridge and up to the Green Bridge. And there we'd stand and we'd wait. And on one occasion, it was very cold and he wasn't really well dressed, but I had a blanket wrapped around him and we could see the train coming down from Ashton Avenue and it's coming toward us and the tracks are rumbling and the train is puffing this you know terrible breath of diesel and it comes and there it passes under us and we're standing directly over and Gabriel said and he scared to death but he loves it and every time the train comes he wants to do it again you know because That's such an amazing experience. He'll never forget it. 
That's how it is with our God. That's what we have to look forward to, friends. That's who our God is. Isaiah's response to what he hears and what he has experienced is that he becomes completely undone. He says, woe is me. I am ruined. Why? He says, because I'm a man of unclean lips. Well, what does that mean? Well, unclean lips have to do with speech, right? What comes out of our mouth? Sins of speech are probably the most common and prevalent forms of sin that take place among the human race, if we were to kind of statistically poll that. Jesus said, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. You know, so it just comes out. We can't help it, right? Eventually it comes out, even if we're quiet people by nature. What we say is who we are. It comes from the substance of the heart. James says this, he says, and the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets the course of our life and is set on fire by hell itself. Pretty strong words there. This is the point. The substance of one's heart is revealed by the words we speak. The scriptures establish a relationship between what proceeds from our mouth and our manner of life, how we carry ourselves, what we truly believe, what our attitudes are about life, what we think life should be. The things that a person talks about are indicative of what's important to them. Now, I spent a lot of years prior to pastoral ministry, up until I was probably 32, working in a lot of different places, shops in Detroit, uh, UPS for eight years. Uh, I was a custodian. I worked in a Twinkie shop selling used secondhand Twinkies. Um, You name it. I did it, whatever it took to get the job done, right? And I could hear people talk in these different settings. And the common thing is that people say the same things. They don't talk ways that are very edifying, do they? You know, it's shop talk. We know what shop talk is, right? Well, it's the same kind of talk that happens at school. It's the same type of talk that happens everywhere where people get together. Because out of the heart flows what the heart is full of. Isaiah says, woe is me. I'm ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. So first of all, he's convicted himself of his speech that it reveals a heart that's not right with God. I want you to think about your speech in the last 24 hours. Maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe your speech was full of praise. Maybe you took the lessons from last week and... And you said, you know, I have been created for praise and thanksgiving. And that's what you've really been focusing on. Good for you. But I think some of us are guilty of gossip, complaining, slander, saying things about other people that hurt, insinuating things that are not necessarily true, anger expressed, unfiltered, 
unbridled, insults to protect ourselves. Those are the things that indicate a heart that is not right with God. And he says, I live among a people of unclean lips. He knew his culture and society around him. He knew their speech. Just like I knew the mindset of the guys that I worked with at the shop in Detroit. I remember them laughing and making fun of a particular person. And it was cruel. But they didn't think twice of it. Everyone had a good time with it. Jesus said, what you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. And what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. You know, we will be held accountable for our speech. The bottom line is the gospel confirms the confession of Isaiah that we're all undone. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory revealed by God. Holy, holy, holy. He says, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Why did he think that he was now undone, broken, ruined? Because he just gotten a reality check, right? He had just seen a vision of God. That was the thing that called him to attention. And that is what's missing in our lives today. And certainly in our culture is that we've lost sight of who God is. As the Holy One. A clear vision of God will reset our perspective on sin. On what is acceptable and what is deplorable. A clear vision of God will cause us to feel shame and guilt. We're presently apart from God. There is none. We pull these sins around on an ox cart unabashedly, you know, proud of our sins. A clear vision of God brought perspective on the moral life in Israel. Have you ever been present when someone starts to tell a story in one of these kind of shop contexts? And there you are, rather uncomfortable, right? You're sitting there thinking, this isn't really where I want to be. And I can't really just, you know, walk away. And, And then as the person is starting to tell their story, they notice that you're there and they think, Oh, gosh, I feel uncomfortable. I'm sorry about this, uh, Pastor or Holy Joe or whoever you are. But, you know, excuse me, but. And then he goes on. He, he, you know, he can't resist the opportunity. To, to, it's just too good of a story to pass up. And, of course, he gets the desired response from everybody. But, but your presence there has sort of reset the culture. They know, even if they're non-believers, that what they just did was really not acceptable. You, know, you don't apologize because you're the Holy Joe. You just stand there and shine because you're, you're salt and you're light. Accept that as part of your identity. So Isaiah is broken. He's undone. He's crushed. He's at the end of himself. He's ruined. Can you imagine how it feels to have all the props knocked out from under? You're just like melting in the presence of God. You know, nothing to stand on. You are completely exposed, vulnerable, and guilty. You have absolutely no hope of recovery. You can't say, but God, I'm better than them. It's like, no, you're, you might be a little bit better, but you're not good enough. 
God is now preparing Isaiah for service. Now, you might say, this is preparation for service? When I try to prepare someone for someone, I build them up. You know, I tell them that they're good. I try to, you know, psych them up. Believe in yourself. You can do it. Come on, get out there and change the world, right? We hear that at college graduations, you know. You have it all before you. You can do anything you want. And what does God do? It's like, this is who I am. Holy, holy, holy. And we just melt in His presence. And this is preparation for service? Yeah, it it happened throughout the Bible. In Joshua's experience, we read in Joshua chapter 5 that they're coming into the promised land and they come to to the Jordan River and God parts the river at the time when the river is the highest during the fall season. And the whole body of Israel travels across on dry land. And then he says, oh, take one member of each tribe and go back and get a big stone from the riverbed and take it over and build a big pile of rocks. And then when your children ask you in successive generations, what's that big pile of rocks for? You can look and say, that's because our God delivered us by bringing us on dry land across the riverbed. He did to the Jordan exactly what he had done to the Red Sea. And now he's elevating Joshua as leader over Israel. The next thing he does is he has them circumcised. They hadn't done that since the wilderness experience. So this whole generation needed to understand that they were a covenant people. That God had this special relationship. They were actually called a holy people, sanctified by this act of circumcision unto God. And then they begin to eat the produce of the land, the promised land that God said he would bring them into. This is the holy land. Okay, so the first thing that they're going to do when they get into this new land is they're going to take this city called Jericho. You remember the spies had gone and then come back and now they're going over and they're going to take Jericho. And as Joshua is getting ready with his people He sees this man in front of him with a large sword standing there, sword drawn, ready to fight him. Joshua says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And what does the man say? He says, I am the captain of the Lord's host. Remove your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua was expecting to receive instructions. Instead, he is humbled. He's told to take off his hand. It's not the thing you do when you're getting ready for war. But they're walking into the Holy Land and God's preparation for his people to conquer, to conquest the new land is to be holy themselves. That was the primary means of preparation You shall be holy, for I am holy. The Apostle Paul said, In a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, some for honor and some for dishonor. If anyone cleanses himself from these things, referring to the sins of the flesh described above in the context, 
He will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So before conquering Jericho and the promised land, Joshua and the people needed to be sanctified or made holy, set apart for the Lord. Before Isaiah could be used by God to proclaim his message of judgment upon the people, he needed to be made holy before the, God, before the Lord. And before you and I can be fit for service, we need to be made holy before God. Strategies, knowledge of the enemy, or the many ways it might seem important as preparation for the work of service, all f- fall secondary, far away from the primary need to be a holy man or a woman of God. So in 6 and 7, we see the preparation for service. The seraphim fl- fly to Isaiah with a burning coal in their hand, in his hand. Seraphim means to burn. In Psalm 104, we read that God makes his angels servants a flame of fire. The Lord initiates the cleansing of Isaiah through his angel. He sees Isaiah's response to the vision. He knows Isaiah's heart is one of brokenness and repentance that he's laid bare before the Lord, that he feels ruined. And so the seraphim takes tongs and removes a burning coal from the fire, burning on the bronze altar in the temple. And he touches Isaiah's mouth and declares, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Now being touched with a burning coal, (laughs) that would hurt, right? Ouch. You can imagine hearing the sound and smelling the singed flesh. Of course, there's nothing in a burning coal that can cleanse the heart of a person from sin. But because the coal was taken from the bronze altar where the blood animal sacrifices were offered continually, this cleansing represents the old covenant atonement or covering of sin by the blood of an animal sacrifice, foreshadowing the ultimate one-time offering of Christ as an offering for our sin upon the cross, resulting in complete forgiveness. Further, cleansing and forgiveness is sometimes very painful, right? To get to the place where we can be forgiven, we must come to the end of ourselves. That's a painful place to be. And to be cleansed requires that we turn from our sins. That's called repentance, a 180 change in our lives. Turning from sin can be painful because it means giving up the sinful practices that have placed us in bondage in the first place. And let's be honest with each other. Sin is pleasurable or it wouldn't be attractive. Self-pity feels good. We wallow in justifying ourselves that we are victims, that we have been mistreated, and we have an excuse for not trying. Self-pity feels good. 
Pride feels good. It elevates us over others, and we find reasons why we're superior, and we can rejoice in our achievements and accomplishments because I'm better than you. Lust feels good. Immediate gratification for these physical yearnings instead of self-control and viewing ourselves as dead to sin. Lust feels good. Anger feels good. Just vent. Let them have it. Let them walk around in eggshells around me as I control things through my anger and temper. Gossip feels good. You know, you're in the know. People want to be associated with you because you know what's going on. And you can just sort of whisper little innuendos and keep people abreast of the latest. Anxiety feels good. You're conscientious, type A personality. You worry about everything, but you've got all the balls up in the air and you're juggling things and you're running with it. It feels kind of good, you know, but I'm worried. We must get to a place where we really, really recognize sin for what it is. And it's only until we get a fresh vision of who God is, found in His Word, that we understand that we're sinful. And that is deplorable to God. The reason for which Christ died. Then we can be cleansed. So I challenge you, I ask you, what sin are you harboring? What are you holding on to? What does God convict you of? What do you need to surrender? What are you in denial of? What are you justifying in your own mind? What sins has God convicted you that stand in the way of you being completely broken and ruined before God? Until you come to that place, you'll not be prepared for God's call. You see, God is doing something. He's very active in the world. He's building his kingdom. He's advancing his cause. He is on a roll. And he wants to use you and me. But until we're broken and ruined before him, we can't be used. The Lord speaks. He knows that Isaiah is broken. And so he speaks for the first time. In this whole vision, he himself says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? He's speaking in the presence of the hosts of the angels and also in the presence of the Godhead. This you in us is capitalized in this translation, which suggests that the translators consider that he's speaking in terms of the Godhead. Who will represent us to the people. Of course, the only one who is really qualified here to go is the little guy in the corner that's feeling like, you know, he's liquid on the ground. Yeah. But he knows now that he's been cleansed by the coal, the atonement, sacrifice, and he responds here am I. Send me. I'm ready. I don't care what you're after. I'm the guy. I'll go for you. And God hasn't even told him where he's going to go. You know, it's like off and running. Have you ever felt that way? So excited. It doesn't matter what this guy wants. I believe in him. He is holy. There's no one else like him. I'm on his side. I'm ready to go. I've been cleansed. I'm ready to serve. Oh, that's the place that he wants us all to be. 
Some of us would say, but, but Lord, what, what is it you want me to do? Live in the inner city? Oh, I hate the pollution and the you know, closeness of everyone and the traffic. I don't think so, God. You know, we make all kinds of excuses. But that wasn't Isaiah's. We don't have a vision of God, folks. When God calls us, he wants us to be ready to go. This is the kind of volunteer that God is looking for. Isaiah was ready to be used by God to deliver a very important message to God's people. To which God replies, go and tell the people. And he's going to tell them a message of judgment. And that's what the rest of Isaiah is about. So read the book. It's great. Bottom line is God wants to prepare us for service. Have we seen? God for who he is. He reveals himself in the pages of his word. And as you immerse yourself in it, as you look at the glory of God in creation this spring and summer, let it pause your life and cause you to think of who your God is, whom you serve. Have you been broken? Have you come to the end of yourself? Have you received Christ as your personal savior? Do you know him personally? Continue to grow close to him, my friends. You who have known him for a long time, get a fresh glimpse of who he is. Let his holiness permeate your being. See his holiness as a jewel that has just this perfect radiance in all of its attributes and qualities. This is who our God is. It's an amazing God that we have been called to serve. It is what makes life worth living. Is it not? What else is the abundant life? Following my own happiness and pursuits, it doesn't lead to anything but misery. But following God and seeing him for who he is puts life in perspective and prepares me for a mission. I'm ready to go. God has called us to go. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we do, we're going to reflect on the elements. Before us, we have the wafers and we have the cup. Both of which represent the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us. We were ruined. We were unclean. When we want to be cleansed, we come to the cross And we find there that the Savior, God's Son, who came down as the Holy Lamb of God, took our place on that cross. And he was willing to spill his blood and to offer his life in exchange for ours. That's love. That's holy love. Praise God for what Christ has done. If you're here today and you don't know Christ, today is the day. Don't put it off. Surrender yourself to him. Say, Lord, I want that. I want to be cleansed by you. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Be my Savior. And he promises that at that moment, he hears, he sees, he knows your heart. He forgives you. And he sets you free. And he gives you forgiveness. And he gives you the gift of eternal life. And you become his child. If you're here as a believer, this is an opportunity for us to, again, remember what he has done for us. 
we know so little. We're just like touching the tip of the iceberg when it comes to our knowledge of who he is and the extent of his grace. Let's go deeper. Let's reflect deeper and let it change who we are as people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the wafer that represents the body of Christ broken for us. As we take it and we pass it to one another, we're reminded that we're a family taking this together in communion with each other and with you. You are present here with us. We thank you for what you have done and the price that you are willing to pay for our salvation. Bless this bread to our bodies. May our meditation and our thoughts be in keeping with who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way that Isaiah was now prepared to go and to tell the people the message that God had for them to hear, God being a gracious, merciful God, in the same way he has given us careful instructions along with his apostles he said go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit teaching them to observe all that i have commanded you and lo i am with you always even until the end of the age folks We have been cleansed. We have a job to do. Let's do it. We enter into the mission field. Go for it. Amen. Go in peace.